Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director of the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I am surrounded by a significant part of my Hendricks Center team. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on difficult conversations, and we have had one piece where we've talked about difficult conversations in general, but now we're going to try and apply that conversation to a particularly problematic area, not just in communities, but in our society at large and that has to do with issues tied to race and ethnicity. And we've been involved in a really uh, three-year-plus uh, process of trying to help our own community think through issues of diversity. And that story has a beginning and a middle. It doesn't have an ending yet. We're <laughs> still working through it, and in fact, we're actually in the process of transitioning from doing the groundwork that we have done on this topic to actually um, beginning to do things specifically aimed uh, at the community and at large and, and uh, producing reflection and discussion about it. So I've brought my our staff in at the Hendricks Center to um, discuss this, and so to my immediate left, it's probably your right as you face the screen, is Kim Cook. Everything's a matter of perspective, right? <laughs> and then Amanda Stidham is on the end over there, and then Mikel Derosaria, who, uh, who you also might recognize as sometimes hosts this podcast, is on my right. And the reason they're here is because we have a st- as a staff have worked through um, how we went about this and how we wanted to help uh, our community uh, deal with it. So I'm going to go back to the beginning and just kind of walk through the process of what it is uh, that we've been doing. But to do that, you kind of need a before and an, a during, and as I said, there isn't going to be an after because we haven't gotten there yet. But let's let's start with where we, where we started. And I think Kim and Mikkel have been with us the longest. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so Kim, let me start with you because it's the South and ladies go first. And uh, I know, I know. So um, uh, when you think about the way you might have thought about walking into a diversity discussion when you joined us on the staff, mm-hmm. um, what kind of was your take on things in terms of thinking about the issue? That's a loaded question. It is a loaded um, question. I would say I have always felt like I was very open to different cultures and um, diversity and different ethnicities. And um, when I was in high school and college, I did a lot of traveling and did quite a bit of living in different countries and felt like I was a pretty good person at the diverse conversation and having sensitivities in that area. And I learned that I had little, though maybe I had a willingness, I had a very little knowledge for what the particular issues we've faced are. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good good overview. Uh, and and Mikkel, what was your take on this? Of course, now you're, you have – you have cross-cultural experiences mm-hmm. pretty significant. We probably should bring that out before sure. I ask the question. Well, this is an area where I feel like I could uh, grow the most in terms of the things we discuss at the center because mm-hmm. I was born in the United States, but I grew up in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I'm Filipino-American, but mm-hmm. grew up in the Philippines as a missionary kid. My parents were with Campus Crusade for a while. And uh, really, the 
the the whole, and especially in the South, um, the conversation between uh, the African American community and the uh, the Anglo community is something that I felt like one I didn't really understand as much, mm-hmm. and then secondly. I'm not entirely sure how I fit in to that to that conversation, and so um, is it something where I just help facilitate, or do I just stand back and watch? Is there something that I can do to kind of speak into that and, and help people with uh, reconciliation or whatever? So that was interesting for me um, to be part of that conversation with a little bit of an outsider, but also now you know living here in in Texas for, for a number of years too. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that in the conversation that we've had, um, that Mikel, because he had kind of this hybrid position where he was working between between his own background and the particular conversations that take place in the United States was like hovering over our discussion like a conscience <laughs> and reminding us about the depth and the and the width of this discussion so um, so Mikel, we're glad you're you're with us Amanda you came in in the middle of this really we were we had already started but uh, but hadn't really done very many uh, of our full public seminar events yet. So how did you walk into this conversation? Well, honestly, my answer is not the most positive. Full disclosure, I thought this conversation was something that had already been resolved. Mm -hmm. So I was very naive, very Mm -hmm. naive. I thought this was a conversation for the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I thought that this there wasn't much to discuss. I was completely wrong, mind mm-hmm. you, but that's kind of how I came into it when we started talking about the readings we were going to do and some of the things that we were going to talk about. I was a little bit shocked and excited, but also kind of confused as to why we needed to, because again, I was naive to the fact that we needed to have this discussion. Now, I'm going to explain to everybody kind of why we're starting here. Um, This uh, this podcast is about our internal corporate experience as we went through this. And so as a staff and as we were preparing to help other people go through the same space. And so um, this this group is intentionally put together to talk about what we learned as we were going through this process because not only were we doing events for the campus, but we also were in the process of developing a, a reading list for the campus that took um, much of one summer to prepare and then a whole another year to walk through. So we're going to be telling you that story as we move through. And so the makeup of the group is what it is because it's because it's the team that went through this process. Uh, and, and that's why we're structured the way we are. And you will see how we adjust, how we attempted to adjust with the nature of the makeup of this group. Um, to have this conversation by some of the things that we do. So let me let me start where we started. <clears throat> the first set of events that we did, we did two privilege walks. We did one of them in Lamb Auditorium, <clears throat> which when you put hundreds of people in a short space, <clears throat> put a line down the middle and ask them to separate on the basis of questions, it was pretty crowded. It doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. Um, so some of what we're going to be sharing is you know, what we did that worked and what we did that didn't. I mean, it sort of worked, but then there were two things that happened with that event that are of interest. One was we, uh, we posted the fact that we were having this event uh, online. Um, and then we did a subsequent one outside in the in what is our quad, um, uh, where we had a lot more space and we had people stretched out. We even filmed that one and posted uh, posted a little ninety second film of, of what was going on. <clears throat> and what was interesting was the difference of reaction 
inside our community versus the mere posting of the fact that we were having a privilege walk uh, on the other. Let me explain what a privilege walk is. A privilege walk is a walk in which you ask a series of questions that's designed to um, to chronicle the different kinds of experiences that people have, and in some cases, the inherent advantage that they have depending on where they are in society. <clears throat> and so it's a series of questions like, you know, how many of you grew up in a two-parent home? How many of you grew up in a certain part of the city? How many of you uh, how many of you have had a certain kind of experience, uh, like, you know, being pulled over for being in a neighborhood or something like that? It's a series of those kinds of questions. And if you respond positively, if the response is a positive response in terms of the question, you step forward. And if it's a negative response in terms of the question, not yes or no, but whether, you know, if it's a negative experience, you step back. And so everyone lines up on the same line, and hopefully after you've asked about 15, 20 questions, you see the spread. And so there were two things that happened when we did this. One was um, uh, we recognized, as we were asking the questions the first go-around, that because we were dealing with predominantly graduate students, we were already in a privileged conversation to some mm-hmm. degree. You know, people who have the means to get a college education and then go on to graduate school are already on a certain a certain scale. So so that that skewed our results, I think would be fair to say. The, then the second thing uh, that we got was a very positive reaction internally to what it is we were doing and how people thought this was a very good exercise and they were glad we did it, that kind of thing. Um, but then there was the reaction, and we, when we posted this on Facebook, which maybe the lesson is don't post anything on Facebook, <laughs> but when we posted Always this, <laughs> uh, we, got, we started to get pushback. Uh, things like, well, it's clear Dallas Seminary's gone liberal because you know they're having a privilege walk. Of course, what they didn't know is, is that we had framed the entire discussion by having a, a, a little devotional before we did it on the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is Jesus' call to love your neighbor. Uh, and so, you know, I guess if 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 that represents liberal ideology, then maybe we're <laughs> guilty. But I think you know, Jesus is kind of showing us the way in terms mm-hmm. of being sensitive to people that we're talking about. We also have the theological roots of the church is designed to be a place where reconciliation is evident, where you bring Jews and Gentiles together. Mm-hmm. Ephesians two eleven to twenty two as a classic example, coming right off the classic text of salvation is by grace, you know, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And the first good work that's listed in the last part of that chapter is the work of reconciliation that takes place in the church. So I'm thinking this is pretty significant to mm-hmm. pursue this. So so that's the theological basis for what we did, but we got the reaction that we did and it produced a little bit of a stir. We also began to get a little bit of stirring, even though the response on campus was generally positive, a little bit of stirring on the campus. And as Amanda has already said, you know, some of it was, well, haven't we had this conversation? So uh, my question for you, that's a long setup, but my question for you all is, um, um, when we initially started to pursue this as a discussion internally and to think about it, um, 
What was your reaction to the fact that we were having that we were going to step into this discussion and have it? And I'll start with Mikel since he I've already labeled him as the conscience. So uh, <laughs> go ahead, Mikel. Well, when we were going to move into this area one, as I've mentioned already, this is one area where I feel like I could grow the most because just not having grown up in the United States, um, really, when I went to college. Um, in Southern California was the first time that, uh, you know, as an adult that I moved to, to the United States. And um, the conversation in, in Southern California is very different mm-hmm. than, than what we have in the South here, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, there's lots of Hispanics, there's lots of Asians, and it's, unless you're in certain um, certain pockets, you don't have a, a white majority in a lot of places. Yeah, you're talking about in California? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But here I feel like um, there's a regional discussion mm-hmm. that, that happens, and so that was interesting to me. Um, so are you saying that the black-white discussion in particular is a little more intense here because you don't have quite the mix, or you feel you, there's the feeling you don't have quite the mix, or is it because of the history, or, or are you, were you still trying to get your hands around all of that? Possibly because of the history and the region, the mm-hmm. area. I mean, when we were doing ministry in Southern California with uh, Vietnamese refugees and um, Hispanics, I mean, the, the Hispanic and the Vietnamese, you know, Asian gang kind mm-hmm. of, uh, those were the, the concerns, you know, were mm-hmm. like gang, gang mm-hmm. warfare between, you know, Asian gangs and, and Hispanic gangs. And so there wasn't as much of a black-white conversation in where um, Orange County, where, where we were at, um, at least the, the you know, ministry that we were doing. And so walking into this for me was, was something kind of new. Um, also, kind of like Amanda, to see how, how relevant it really is for so many mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Um, who um, you know, don't feel like the conversation has already been um, you know, discussed and settled and there's really still a lot of hurt. And there's, I was surprised to hear even like Tony Evans said that in the 80s even, mm-hmm. people were concerned about having him as an African-American on the radio. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, really? And so that was really eye-opening for me. Hmm. So we probably should go through and, and, and disclose the regions that we grew up in because that might help people as well. So you're in California, right? Mm-hmm. Southern California mm-hmm. or SoCal as you That's like right, to SoCal. call it. Yeah, I, I didn't hear that phrase until I heard it from your mouth. So anyway, so, <laughs> but I feel like an original now, because now when I go down there, I hear all those people saying SoCal. So I'm, so I'm, thank you for, for introducing me to how to have, how to, you know, do my lingo right when I'm in L.A. Um, and you grew up in? The Midwest. I and, grew up in Kansas. In Kansas. Mm-hmm. McPherson, Kansas. McPherson, Kansas. How, the population? I don't know. You don't, I don't know. No get. I mean, person. I mean, maybe thirty thousand. Maybe, maybe. thirty thirty. But I actually grew up. This is a true Kansan. I grew up in a little unincorporated town outside of that. That you were in a suburb of McPherson. Yeah, it was um, hundred and one friendly people is what the sign said. Oh. Hundred and one friendly people. But I don't wow. think that. It, <laughs> I don't Do they think, not count the unfriendlies? Well, I don't know. But I don't think that it actually is hundred and one people. I think that was really optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> From, from a little tiny town church town. growth or something, yeah. right? <laughs> That's great. Okay, so you're Midwest. Midwest. Yeah. Very, very Anglo. Okay. Very. Okay. And Amanda? I grew up in a racially diverse area in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. It's about 2 million people in the metropolis, but I think the majority is African American, around 65%. Mm-hmm. And your school experience, was it was – it racially mixed or it was at the time i didn't understand what that meant mm-hmm. um, i went to a private school and we did have a lot of african americans that attended the school i didn't understand that they were privileged more so than any other african american person mm-hmm. now looking back i can see that they did have privilege mm-hmm. but i didn't know 
how to call that or what to call that when I was that age. Now, how much, uh, because it sounds like you may have had the most mixed experience growing I grew up in Texas, but I went to a private school that was not very um, desegregated. So um, I, I, I was in the 60s conversation. Yeah. That was all going on when I was growing up. Um, uh, how, how mixed were the communities that functioned in your school, or did people pretty much keep to themselves and to their own ethnicities? So I grew up in a suburb called Bartlett outside of Memphis, and it was not very mixed Mm -hmm. at all. It was not very diverse. But again, at the time, since I was naive to this conversation and the fact that we needed to have it, I didn't know that it wasn't mixed. I I just assumed that the people I went to school with were the same as me. I didn't really spend a lot of time in East Memphis or West Memphis, for that matter, where um, they did have poor communities or communities with – a lot of racial ethnicities and, and things of that nature. Okay. All right. So so now let's come to the next uh, step of what we did. So we did the privilege walks, mm-hmm. and that kind of got us started. Then our next grand idea <clears throat> was to do a movie night. Uh, <laughs> okay. You shook your head. <laughs> you have to pay for that look. <laughs> we, were, we were trying. We were trying. Okay. So we so we ske- we scheduled this movie called Hidden Figures um, and thinking uh, doing a movie night and wanting to build a discussion around it. And our goal had been to introduce uh, a film that one people could sit and watch, you know, and we had popcorn and stuff like that for it just to give a feel for the event and kind of help everybody relax. And then and then have a discussion afterwards. And, and of course, this was a film that was very popular in Anglo communities when it was released. Um, and those of you who don't know what Hidden Figures was, it was a film on, on three uh, African-American women who worked with NASA, whose story had basically been unknown, and talked about the social conditions and the way in which they were treated in the midst of of their work with NASA, <clears throat> and um, showing really almost – it was an attempt, I think, to show, at least at one level, um, some of the hidden prejudicial things that were going on in the society at the time. This is a movie, obviously, about the 60s, and so um, so it was designed to do that. I think probably the most – one of the well, most well-known parts of the film is how the bathroom situation was handled at NASA, and, and there are scenes that are loaded with both humor but are trying to make a point about the way that worked for a black woman who was at NASA who had to walk all the way across the complex to use the restroom, and that would cause them to be absent from their desks for a while, and, and there was a lot of play around that. But we had we had chosen this movie as kind of a, a discussion starter, for lack of a better uh, description, and we're going into it. Um, swimmingly, uh, enjoying what had been planned, and all of a sudden we got rumblings. And Kim, I'll let you describe what those rumblings were and what we did about it. So, so the rumblings that we got from some of the some of our own community, some of the African American community on campus. Talk a little bit about that, and then how we tried to um, deal with that. Well, they let us um, generously and graciously. They took us aside and said, this isn't as as easy of a situation as you are thinking that it is. Yeah, it's not as positive of a movie as you're thinking that it is. Here's how it's been received in the African-American community, and here are the concerns with it, here are our concerns with it, and 
you're getting ready to step into something that you probably don't know what's coming. <laughs> you don't know and what you're going to step into. We are, yeah. as your brothers and sisters in Christ, saying, please be careful, and mm. you really need to think through this. And so from that, we took those brothers and sisters in Christ <laughs> and said, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for making us aware of this and aware of our own ignorance in this area. And um, we formed um, basically some, oh, what like a focus, focus group. Thank you. Yeah. Focus. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. focus. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we formed some focus groups with those individuals and some others on the campus to help other diverse voices on the campus to help us because we are a predominantly Anglo staff to help us think through some things where we could recognize that we might be ignorant to conversations that we should not be ignorant of if we're trying to engage this discussion. Exactly. And so so we put this together. So we actually had pre-meetings that was actually discussion about whether even to show the film or not, mm-hmm. whether it would be wise to do so, et cetera. But, but because we're stubborn, we pressed ahead and uh, uh, and decided to do it, And uh, but d- talked about how to set it up. And we learned something that's very core about difficult conversations. Um, and I'm sure um, this uh, w- this is something that uh, Dr. Barnes and Dr. Woody and I discuss in the, in the first part, which is that all conversations have three levels. There's the what you're talking about. There's the level of the filter that you take that through, and then there is the way in which your identity is impacted by that conversation. And most people, when they have their conversations, are only thinking about the top layer. They're reacting on the basis of the other two, but they're only thinking about the top layer. And so, um, and, and actually, when I speak about this nationally to audiences, the only thing I have to do to illustrate that second layer is to go, let me give you two phrases, okay? CNN and Fox News. And the moment I do that, people immediately get, yeah, there are filters through which this top layer is going through. And so the result of what you get when you take stuff through the filters ends up being, uh, ends up looking very differently. In fact, my joke when I do this is I say, and sometimes you wonder if they're living on the same planet, even though they're hmm. looking at the same thing. And so, um, so this is a, so this is a very natural thing. And we were trying to probe what. What produces those filters? Well, one of the things that produces those filters, obviously, is a different kind of experience. They've had a different kind of experience that has, in some way, shaped the way they Mm -hmm. see what's going on. And these focus groups allowed us, I think, to begin to probe why is it you can look at the same set of Mm -hmm. phenomena and and see very different things. So, um, so. I would say the focus groups were pretty pretty helpful to us. Um, Amanda, you again, you came in kind of in the middle of, of this process rather than from the very beginning, but you've sat in on some of these focus group uh, discussions. Tell me wh- how, kind of what your experience was in in working through that in working through those. So the first focus group I sat in on, again, I was coming into it with the naivete of being unaware that this was a conversation that needed to be had. So once I kind of got on board and started to trust those I was hearing that, yes, you do need to be engaged in this conversation, I started to feel a visceral reaction within myself of distaste Mm -hmm. for this conversation, as if I were feeling guilty for something. And this was new. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like the third layer you're talking about, the identity. I Mm -hmm. was feeling like my identity was being questioned or or my motives. 
whereas I didn't even know I was being tested my whole life. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that this was something I needed to be aware of. So I felt ignorant um, behind and uh, and just guilty. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a f- fresh new wave of feelings mm-hmm. and emotions that I started to have to work through. Was it did you feel frustrated that you were caught kind of caught out by any yeah. of this? I didn't mean to be white per se. Yeah, I didn't yeah, mean to yeah, do yeah, anything yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, and yet now I'm feeling uh, like I've done something wrong without having meant to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and Mikkel, you again you're in a little bit different kind of position. Mm-hmm. How are how are you responding to the focus groups that we were having? Well, I think kind of like Amanda, I learned that for, for a lot of our my white brothers and sisters that there's this feeling of like there's almost a reverse ethnocentrism that mm-hmm. happens if they get into the conversation um, to in a certain place where they feel like now I have to apologize for being white mm-hmm. and and what can I do mm-hmm. and so I, I learned that there's a lot of um, the identity part which mm-hmm. is which is key but also that a lot of the the uh, Anglo students want to do something like they want to do something but they don't know what to do mm-hmm. and it seems like it's it's not entirely defined and so mm-hmm. everyone's looking for how can I be part of the solution how can I help how can I help facilitate this and you know that it's it's kind of ethereal sometimes so it's, for it's a strange position to be in because on the one hand you're trying to get located, mm-hmm. okay, why, and why is this all going on, and why am I reacting it to the way that I am? And yet, there's another part of the person who says, "Well, I'd really like to step into this positively, but I'm just mm-hmm. not quite sure where to step yeah. without getting into trouble." So, um, so there's an awkwardness to it. Mm-hmm. I can go back to the privilege walk. Uh-huh. Another thing I learned is we have different perspectives on what privilege actually is. That's right. So, for example, when uh, one of the questions said, "If you grew up in an urban environment," take a couple steps back. And I thought I didn't know I was not privileged because I grew up in an urban environment. Because mm-hmm. I felt sad for people who had to grow up in the corn, you know. Right. <laughs> and it's like I had hotels and malls and you know all kinds you of. You had things more than 101 yeah. friendly people. Yeah. <laughs> the so, a lot of stuff, the right? <laughs> and so yeah. I thought well, I didn't feel like uh, that was not being privileged. I mm-hmm. thought I had a lot of privilege growing up in an urban environment where there were all, all kinds of resources, um, public transportation, all this stuff, and so even re. Uh, reevaluating what the definition of privilege is to certain groups of people was kind of new as well. Well, and actually, that's one of the things that sometimes people complain about about the privilege walk is that it makes certain assumptions about the positivity or negativity of certain kinds of experiences that may or may not be a reflection of the reality. Because again, just bringing in the Philippines or or most countries around the world, people are drawn to an urban environment because it potentially can provide so much. Mm-hmm. And so our our demographics globally are shifting because of what a city can provide. So, so yeah, it's uh, there are interesting uh, challenges in relationship to that as well. well we did- this episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. 
Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. That we did the hidden figures, we had the conversation afterwards. Um, I would, I think it'd be fair to say that uh, the discussion that we ended up having. I actually think this is fascinating. I think this is one of the adjustments that we made as a result of the focus groups, was rather than going in and discussing the film per se and how people reacted to it, and in part, part of that had to do with knowing the history of the film and how accurate it was versus what really happened, mm-hmm. which we discovered as a result of the focus groups wasn't quite a one-to-one match. Um, the discussion that we ended up having was a discussion about why is it that some groups respond positively to this film and other groups respond negatively to this film. And how we're back to where we were. How can you be looking at the same thing and respond so differently? And that was, that was a revealing conversation for a lot of people, but it also was a troubling conversation uh, because this was supposed to be a feel-good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it didn't make everybody feel good. Uh, and so that caused us to dig in a little more and say, what's causing that? Why is it that, that something that on the surface, at least to one group, looks so positive can be so problematic to another? Um, we also, during this time, launched into a series of doing specific podcasts that address this area. Um, so one in particular that I remember, although we did at least a couple, uh, was the interview I did with Tony Evans, in which I opened with the question, tell me what eyes an Anglo don't get about being black in America. Mm-hmm. And he spent, I don't know, five, ten minutes. It was a, it was a good long se- – he would just went through a sequence of experiences mm-hmm. that he, as a black African-American, goes through on a regular basis that I never even have to think about. Just one after another. Um, there's an article, well-known article by Peggy McIntosh called "The Invisible Knapsack" that does the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what it's designed, what that's designed to do, is to indicate um, the difference, the difference between two kinds of experiences that is so great that it that it's forming. And it also is reflective of what we might call in the inherent, the inherent structures in a society that advantage or disadvantage one group or another. That's, what's, that's what privilege is. And so um, – and, and deal with those kinds of issues. And uh, that is – that was a very uh, revealing, I think, five, ten-minute conversation that he and I ha- had. And, uh, and the, the beauty of it is, is that he and I are, are very good friends, and so we – it's a, a discussion that's – it's not an easy discussion, but it's a discussion we can easily have with one another. And, uh, and so, so we put that out on the table. So we marched along and we decided we're going to, we decided to do two things. We decided to have another movie night and we decided to begin building a reading list. And uh, I'm actually not entirely sure what the sequence was. They were kind of both happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie that we decided to take a look at, and I think I'll go through the movie nights and then come back to the reading list, um, was the movie Selma, which we saw as an uh, an educational um, exposure to what actually took place in the 60s, a kind of way into that conversation because, again, our student body is 
relatively young. I mean, I'm looking at you. You all are relatively young. I mean, how old were you all in the 1960s? And so so we decided that that would be a good movie in. And again, we got our focus group said, now, wait a minute. You don't realize um, how difficult this discussion is for some people. And what we got introduced to in that particular sequence was um, the idea that to, in effect, relive this trauma uh, is a completely a different experience for an African American than it is for an Anglo. And you can already see we've we've you know we've been talking now almost a half hour. You can all you can already see how focused we were, particularly on the black white discussion and what it was that we were doing, which mm-hmm. we're going to be coming back to in a second. So we did this movie, and uh, and it and it kind of opened up all the difficult conversation that one has when one one deals with race. Uh, and it was such a success, we've decided not to do another movie night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've, so so we've learned from the – strategic option. Yeah, that's more right. More so t- so tell uh, – again, Kim, walk us through kind of what that reaction was and, and kind of where that left us. Um, I mean, I feel like the reaction from that particular event was – I'm trying to think. We, you know, the community as a whole and a variety of different um, ethnicities and races kind of said, we understand what you're trying to do, but we think there are better ways for you to be doing it. And mm-hmm. this isn't. This, this isn't, isn't taking us away. Yeah. And yeah. this isn't a helpful way to go about this conversation because there are more specific discussions that need to be had than can be surfaced by these kinds of movies, at mm-hmm. least in the kind of context we are functioning in. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of had to reevaluate how we were going to go about having a conversation on campus and really, quite frankly, trying to address systemic things on our campus and in our communities and uh, rather than just discussing. And, and I think that was another part of the pushback from from several of our efforts was there's a lot of discussion, but there's not a lot of anything what gets done. Yeah. following it up. And and mm-hmm. we're and and the re sorry, re traumatization of just having to consistently talk about this and hash through it and it's just not it's not fair to have to keep doing this. Mm-hmm when there's really no change happening. Mm-hmm. So this put us in an odd position. So we, in the, as that was going on, at the same time we were doing so well um, that, that um, we were going through a reading list. Now the reading list had originally been a black-white conversation mostly. And, uh, and so the assignment was, this was my responsibility, is I said, I'm going to take the staff through our reading. I want them to kind of be the, the test readers for what it is we're going to do for the campus. And we got about three or four weeks in, and every staff meeting was a challenge in these discussions, <laughs> was to be the way to say it. And, uh, uh, and we realized the readings weren't – we're actually going through the same sequence with the readings that we were experiencing with the movies, mm-hmm. if I can say it that way. I think that would be the way to summarize it. Um, and, and so we realized we needed to kind of recalibrate what we were doing. 
uh, because it wasn't going very well. There was a lot of contention. All the feelings that Amanda described earlier, the frustration, the lack of understanding, the lack of connection, et cetera, that was all surfacing. It was surfacing across the board. And, and so we weren't getting anywhere. So we changed, and we went back and we said, let's try this a different way. Why don't we broaden the discussion? After all, this is a discussion on diversity, so we're not looking at one particularly diverse relationship. Let's look at a series of them. And so we went back and we said, okay, let's do some reading about the Hispanic situation. Let's do some reading on the Asian situation. Let's do some reading on the black situation. Let's do some reading on the native uh, Indian situation. Let's do some reading on uh, the Caribbeans. Let's do some reading on the Africans. And uh, I think we had uh, Eastern European section as well. So we went, you know, we 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 broadened it. Mm-hmm. And I think my question here is: so what happened? What did that accomplish that we were failing to accomplish in the earlier discussion? I feel like it allowed it. I'll just speak for myself. It allowed me to see my privilege mm-hmm. in a way that that I had been confronted with in the, our first conversations as we read about white guilt and white fragility and all of that. I, I had been told what it was, and, and I, I, I didn't necessarily mm-hmm. feel convinced of anything. I just kind of felt very defensive. But seeing it with one people group after another people group mm-hmm. after another people group, y- when you get through all of those people groups, you can't help but look and see. Something's got to be going on here, right? Man, I'm... Yeah. There, there is, yeah, th- this is a reality, mm-hmm. and this is a world that has been going on around me that I had no idea was going on. Hmm. Amanda? Well, it kind of opened my eyes, again, to kind of what Kim was saying, but also it wasn't a conversation that was me and all my white brothers and sisters against the world. It was kind of like reframing it to where we're all on the same team. Because mm-hmm. at first, when it was like black, white, it just felt like one team against the other. But, you know, it's not like someone's attacking me personally at all. It was more of like we're actually all of, well, all in this together, and we need to have a conversation and start to do things to make change together, not like you did something wrong, now you owe me per se. It was like, how can we all get? on the same team. And so it kind of took the blame or guilt off of my shoulders and helped me be able to start seeing something from someone else's perspective so where I could understand what what where they're coming from. I mean, this is a conversation for any relationship, whether it's a racial relationship, whether it's a marriage, mm-hmm. just seeing something from someone else's perspective. And those readings started to open my eyes to that. Like Amanda, get out of yourself and, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I I think the thing that's that's interesting about it is is that it it shows it shows the corporate dimensions of what's going on. You you, you in in your explanation, you're separating yourself and what you're feeling personally from what's going on around you, and you can see there's a corporate impact that's mm-hmm. going on. It's going on across all these groups. All the the thing that the thing that struck me about it was. Um, you'd read each group, and each group would have the same core reaction mm-hmm. to the majority cultural structures that they were operating in. And yet, at the same time, they each had their own particular sensitivities that, mm-hmm. that made up their culture. So you could see the similarities and differences. And as you watched it move across all these groups, it was like, so you're going to deny this is going on? Right. It's kind of hard to do. Yeah. Well, and you saw the system. Yeah. You saw the systemic. Uh-huh. 
oppression yeah. of of anybody that does not look like us mm-hmm. and and that's really for me was the turning point in the conversation mm-hmm. and in my understanding mm-hmm. was when I really began to understand and and see the system mm-hmm. and the systematic problems okay mm-hmm. so again Mikhail as a conscience yeah you were watching this and and your reactions were almost multiple weren't they yeah well if I can juxtapose the Selma movie and and the readings uh-huh. the Selma movie actually is something that that not a lot of us notice but there were actually a lot of international students who were there that's right who, like me were learning about this mm-hmm. I in high school I took AP US history I passed the AP US history <clears throat> exam but I did not have that um, that kind of being able to walk into um, a, a, an experience mm-hmm. like that to see really um, what was happening the way the movie portrayed it. So that was eye-opening. That was learning um, on mm-hmm. on my part and also on you know, especially uh, – So it was plugging students. a hole that you had yeah. and helped you to understand why is this such a, bi- as such a big deal? Yeah. Well, it's not just something you read about in a book. The, yeah. What a movie does is it helps you enter in, into something emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so that was helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to the readings, one, when we started branching out beyond uh, simply the uh, the black-white conversation, not that it's a simple conversation, mm-hmm. but uh, exclusively focusing on that. Mm-hmm. One, I felt heard, mm-hmm. felt like less of a ghost, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I felt like even though I personally, in my own experience, growing up in the Philippines and then moving to the United States as an adult, um, I have not felt held back in any way whatsoever by the fact that I'm not white. Mm-hmm. But that's not everybody's experience. Mm-hmm. And so rather than me saying, that's not a problem, I don't get denied entrance into this school or that school because mm-hmm. I'm not white. Well, but that's not everyone's experience. And so that was that was a learning thing for me as well. Okay. So what we've done is we've put together this this reading list, uh, which we haven't released yet to the public. We've actually circulated um, not just internally a little bit, but uh, we've sent the list to a couple of people on the outside to take a look at for us. But we've put it together, and it is structured around these different groups. Uh, well, there's a, there's a beginning part that is um, just an orientation to the discussion in general and to the issues of, of having these kinds of conversations, that they're difficult, that they're inevitably turbulent, that they're inevitably challenging uh, people on all sides in a variety of different ways, and then how to think about them, doing some definitional work as well so that people hear who hear and read terms on a regular basis will understand what they do and don't mean, which is important. And then we go through these various groups, and then we get at the end of the list, there's a there's two forms. There's a short list and a longer list that gets into specific issues that, that come up where you can see these kinds of things going on. It's a wide open list in terms of perspectives that are put forward because part of our commitment is to have a conversation in which you're hearing the whole public square mm-hmm. aspect of this conversation, which is important. And so uh, we're, you know, we're on the edges of, uh, of releasing this list, um, both to our community and then making it available to people in general. Um, tell us about uh, your experience in, in going through the readings. Now remember, what we did is we not only did the readings together, but of course we had discussions about mm-hmm. each piece as we went through it uh, as a, a part of our staff meetings. So. So um, let's talk a little bit about what that experience was like. And even though, Amanda, you asked me not to ask you first on something, on this one I'm going to ask you first. So uh, tell me what your experience was as we went through, the, went through the readings on this. Well, the reading list was very helpful that it started with 
as you say, how to have a difficult conversation. So Mm -hmm. you wrote a piece about the um, three levels, Mm -hmm. and that was very eye-opening because if you're not privy to it, then you assume that you understand and see things the same as everybody else when really you're being influenced by your lens and your identity. Mm -hmm. So just having that piece as one of the – preliminary pieces we read was very helpful. We also read one that was called, I think, Difficult Conversations, um, where someone is actually writing out almost as a script, say Mm -hmm. it's a a play or something, whereas someone will say something, it was written out, and then on the other side of the sheet, it was what that person interpreted. And I'll tell you, that helped me extremely just within marriage, of knowing that 90% of what I say, or I made that percentage up, but (laughs) a lot of the percentage of what I say it is my job to make sure that I am interpreted correctly. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of opened my eyes to that, that, hey, maybe everything you say or everything that is said in society is not interpreted the same way as the way you take it. So that was helpful at the beginning. As we went through the readings, you know, at first I was still naive and I hadn't had my eyes fully opened, if you will. And I started to feel guilty, but also frustrated and also feeling as if, well, this isn't still a problem. Why are we even doing this? You know, I already have a lot of reading for school. Why am I reading all this stuff? This isn't still going on. You know, because both the movies we watched were set in the 1960s. And so I'm like, this is a conversation for, you know, all the people from the 1960s, not necessarily for my generation. And as we went through, like Kim said, these repetitive problems that we read week after week, you cannot deny it. Mm-hmm. And so at first, I and felt, these are more recent pieces yeah, too. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the thing. They were from just a year ago or two yeah. years ago. Yeah. And so I, I was just unable to deny that this is a problem that needs to be addressed, and you need to have your eyes open to it, Amanda. And so it took, honestly, the Holy Spirit within me to humble me to. Hey, Amanda, this is not something that someone is personally attacking you, and this is a problem. You need to have a softened heart to see things from other people's perspective. Hmm. Kim? Um, what stood out to me, besides, like I said, the systemic, and, and it, uh, when I talk about that, I, I particularly began to identify as I saw some things that I have faced as a woman mm-hmm. in mm. maybe more conservative Christianity, but even in our wider society, things that I've experienced and all, and that that really was kind of when the light turned on mm. um, as to what systemic problems even look like and thinking, mm. oh my goodness, That's good. I know, I know how that feels. I know how it feels to, you know, have education and training and seniority and I don't have certain things open to me, you mm-hmm. know? And so that and part and um, particularly reading Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I had never read much mm-hmm. of him. And so that experience was incredibly meaningful and reading what he wrote in the sixties mm-hmm. and seeing that it was still incredibly relevant today mm-hmm. was really eye opening. And Mikael? Yeah, I think for me the difficult conversations piece at the beginning was so helpful to frame every single area of this discussion Hmm. because it goes beyond even just talking about multiculturalism and diversity. It goes even when you're talking about uh, world religions Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. defending the faith or anything about what what you believe is to not think, well, who's right and who's wrong in this situation right away, but to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and um, 
be able to have that conversation in a way that that isn't combative, in a way that's more uh, coming alongside the other person and exploring together rather than having an us versus them. Yeah, the key part of that conversation is to say that before you actually get into assessment and figure out what's right and wrong about Mm -hmm. it or what needs to be fixed or however Mm -hmm. you're going to pursue that conversation, you got to be sure you're understanding each other and where each of you are coming from. I I sometimes call it getting a spiritual GPS on somebody. And so – and that takes – a good deal of listening and what I call muting muting your assessment meter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it isn't that you turn it off, but that you mute it, that you aren't responding to someone by thinking, how am I going to respond, react, mm-hmm. or rebut what's being said? But your first instinct is to say, can I understand what this person is saying to me first and why they're saying it? Mm-hmm. And then working from that space out. So, um, so that's an important part of the discussion. Okay, now I'm going to ask a couple of difficult questions. Um, uh, so there was – I'm hearing there are undulations uh, uh, of guilt or distancing or something going on initially. Um, it's clear you've worked through that to some degree in terms of processing it and understanding it. How did, how do you how, – how did you work through it? How did you – how did you – you know, the way these discussions work is you hit a barrier and usually it's this reaction and, and that becomes – I'm going to use a old evangelistic phrase, the hour of decision. I'm, I'm using it in a new way. Um, and so now you've got to decide, am I going to step back and withdraw? Am I simply going to react? Or am I going to push through? Um, so talk a little bit about that that process for each one of you. What, what, uh, what, was, that, what was that like? And of course, Mikkel's, yours is kind of a mixture because you've got you've – got the understanding of a minor, of a kind of minority experience on the one hand, and yet you're watching this go on on the other. So, mm-hmm. so how did you process through that? Yeah, and I'm also married to a white woman, so I have my foot in that community as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, you know, where my family is white, mm-hmm. um, and so I understand where some of the guilt comes from. Um, I personally didn't struggle with any guilt going mm-hmm. through these, um, but that's just because none of these. I don't think the many authors had people like me in mind when they were when they were writing. Yeah, you were the ghost, as yeah. you like to say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of loving people well mm-hmm. is what should make us trudge through what might be difficult, what might be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, because in the end, I think we really need to see people as people, mm-hmm. and not whether it's world religions, whether it's uh, a particular race, instead of seeing someone as a Muslim or seeing someone as an Asian person, whatever, that you see that person as a person. And in the same way that we're not going to um, stereotype what a Muslim believes, a particular Buddhist believes, we shouldn't stereotype the experience of somebody else who, uh, from a certain ethnicity, but really to, to be that listening ear, mm-hmm. to understand where they're coming from, what their experience is, and then to, to stay the course with them out of love, because that's what Christ has called us to do. Okay, Kim? Well, my moment was in Dr. Bach's office when I was upset, and <laughs> he was talking me through this. And um, you were highlighting, you know, you come to this point where it's, un- it's uncomfortable and um, difficult, and you don't really want to keep going, and it is a privilege for a white person to even have the option to turn back, whereas most other races and ethnicities don't have that option because they live in they the have to live in the midst of the world. That's right. So in and of itself, I'm standing in a privileged position where I can choose to engage. And that and Dr. Bach challenged me that the Christ like thing is to push through and to um, 
and to enter into discomfort and on behalf of another person and on behalf of mm-hmm. their well-being and loving them. And so from that, I mean, it really was, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and so you put your head down and went through the wall. I did my best. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm still working on it. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, right. I, I feel yeah. like none of us are in a place where we feel like, oh, we've got this. We totally yeah. understand. Right, and That exactly. would be incredibly arrogant and wrong to yeah. be saying. But I think that was really one of the points where I thought, okay, like I, I understand maybe even more of a theological reason why I'm doing this and how to and how to go about it. Mm-hmm. And and the first step, at least for me, is pushing through the discomfort and being willing to engage something that I have the privilege to walk away from, mm-hmm. sort of. Mm-hmm. But but that other people don't even have that opportunity. And I need to do this for them and loving them, and that's how we all become one anyway. Amanda? I would say I looked at it through the lens of my giftedness and knowing Mm. that I never want to back down from a challenge. And so I did see it as a challenge, but I knew that I couldn't just walk away because it was something that had to be pushed through, like you said. Um, But the turning point was, I don't remember which staff meeting, but um, you repeated yourself a couple times that Again, like I said earlier, this is not a conversation where someone is attacking you personally. This is a corporate discussion. And that kind of took the load off my shoulders personally and helped me to realize that, okay, you're you're actually looking at this as a team, and I'm a huge participator, extreme extrovert. And so it, it became like me with my team against this problem, not someone or a problem against me. And so it kind of lifted the load, if you will. And also, you're leading by example of pushing through and not, you know, throwing in the towel when it did get uncomfortable. It helped me to open my eyes. Well, if a person who did grow up in the '60s or you know was alive in the '60s can push through this, how much more can I do as well? Okay. So one last question for all of you, and that is, how has this impacted your understanding of identity, both ethnic identity, your own ethnic identity, and human identity? Okay, so let me make that distinction and 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 press through and uh, and I'll go in the same order. Mikkel, how how is this? How how you we're we're still in the middle of the discussion. Mm-hmm. We haven't landed. You know that's that's all clear. But kind of where do you see where we are now in the as we're in the midst of this? You know, in terms of identity, for me, I it's solidified in my mind how strongly people. Uh, certain people hold to ethnicity as part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Now, for me personally, that's not something I, I hold very, very strongly. I'm, I'm cognizant that that's a part of who I am, but I hold much more strongly to other things about me, like being a Christian, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for other people, it's a lot higher on their values list um, than for me. And so just an awareness of that, um, also an awareness of whenever somebody looks at you before you even open your mouth about the gospel or anything else, they've already formed some kind of a mm-hmm. an idea about who you are and what you believe. And um, especially if you're from different uh, ethnicities, there there may be a um, what's the word an unspoken kind of communication thing that's already going on there um, that you need to understand a pre-understanding that you need to to know where they're coming from so that you can engage better. Kim, mm-hmm. I mean, I it just opened my eyes to the sheltered Kansas world that mm-hmm. I grew up in mm. and was functioning from. And um, 
and it's been it's been interesting ever since we've gone through a lot of these discussions. My husband and I like to watch old shows. Um, I mean, like from you know, two thousand kind of thing. So those are all. Uh, they're not old. <laughs> not currently. Not necessarily dealing with current issues kind of thing. And and I've been shocked at how many. Um, Move, like movies and shows and episodes that I've seen dealing with racism and that kind of thing that I had never even seen, mm-hmm. and I I, ne- I never heard mm-hmm. the message that they were even trying to get it across. You know, in the '90s or in the mm-hmm. 2000s, and it just showed how th- I just had my blinders on and I didn't understand a large part of the world's experience. Hmm. Amanda, I will say you've now trained me to fully listen when someone's speaking so i'm not always thinking about my response per se when uh when the mic's on me but you know as i do think through it i think like Mikkel said it has opened my eyes to my identity in christ first and foremost and how i don't necessarily think of myself as a white person not to say that's good or bad you know it's just what it is but i i do think of my identity as a believer um more often now because that's what connects me to people of a different race. Hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you all for coming in and, and, and helping us kind of talk about this and, and walking through our ups and downs as a, as a staff as we've, as we've thought about this. It's, it's not an easy conversation. It's a conversation that we're still learning from and going through, and, and uh, we have a terrific debt. Uh, that we owe to the focus groups that have um, that had the willingness to come forward, step forward, speak to us, be honest, uh, in some cases be challenging. And uh, that group you're going to be hearing from uh, next when we talk about difficult conversations. We've put together a, a smaller version of those focus group people to come and share their end of this experience because this is a really a three-dimensional conversation in many ways. And, uh, and so I think you'll find that part of this difficult conversation sequence uh, pretty significant. And what we've tried to do with the three parts is to walk you through kind of the frame of what a difficult conversation consists of and how it works, what its dynamics can be, and hopefully the dynamics that cause it to move in a positive direction versus breaking down. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, illustrate one perspective of the difficult conversation where people are on the hard learning edge of the curve. And then the third part will be the part that a person plays who takes the very difficult position of stepping in and challenging uh, what's going on and, uh, and raises the need for a difficult conversation mm-hmm. in a way that uh, hopefully will benefit everybody. So this, this is a sequence. It's very different than anything we've done before on the table in terms of how we're tackling a topic. And our hope is, is that you'll find this beneficial and that you'll come back for part three and, and take a look at the, at the whole sequence and that the whole thing will have been helpful. So we thank you for joining us on the table, and we hope you'll be back again with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries Podcast. 
Do you want to grow in your influence? Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bao's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.